Good morning. So I had the privilege of going to Israel. Now Lee <laughs> taught me how to do this. Lee is my AV guy today. I wish he had worn all black, I told him on the way here. So I had the privilege of going to Israel last month with Otter Creek. And Josh Graves and Lee led this trip. Dwayne Dixon apparently got to count it as work time to some extent. But there were 39 of us, probably 32-ish of us or 31-ish of us attend Otter Creek. Maybe a little, maybe about 30 of us out of the 39 are Otter Creekers. And then probably we had nine or 10 who are not Otter Creekers. Um, I am not a, uh, I, I am, I am a 49% introvert on the Myers-Briggs, 49% introvert, 51% extrovert. So I ride both sides of that fence and I was nervous about being with this many people from about 7.15 in the morning till about 7.15 at night every day. We did every single meal together. We were on the bus together all day. We did about four sometimes six sites in one day. I thought these people are going to get on my nerves and I'm going to need alone time that I'm not going to get and my expectations were all I didn't even have realistic expectations for this trip. This trip is different than anything I've ever done. Um, I would recommend it all day long. If you are a people person or you're not a people person, if you are a a scheduled person or, or you like to ride by the seat of your pants, if you're a, uh, uh, whether you're a learner, you love to learn or you, you know, you keep it kind of light and simple, no matter what, you will like this trip. Um, I loved this trip and I think I, I can speak for most of the people on this trip that we really bonded together. That was a benefit of the trip that I didn't anticipate, um, but we really became a cohesive unit as we experienced Israel together, Israel-Palestine together. And I just loved it. So I don't know if you can recognize any of the faces in there, but Pat Ward was on the trip, Lydia Cox, Steve and Don Sabin, I see Steve this morning. Uh, Rick Fuquay was on the trip, he was so sweet. But we just had the best time. Okay, so this morning, what I want to talk to you about is a little bit about uh, what I learned when we were in Nazareth. And so I put this map in the slideshow. Nazareth is up here. So it's kind of halfway between the coast and the Sea of Galilee. We were definitely in the northern part of Israel. And just to give you an idea of where some other places are, you know, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. There's Bethlehem. Um, this is the Sea of Galilee where most of his ministry took place. Um, so this is, this is Nazareth, and that's what we're going to talk about today. This is a picture of modern day Nazareth that I took. Our oldest son goes to Pepperdine. And for those of you who have ever visited the Pepperdine campus, I personally thought that looked a little like Pepperdine. I really did. Um, Pepperdine doesn't have nearly that many buildings all in one place. Uh, 
but it, it resonated. Pepperdine, it just looked familiar to me. It looked a little like Pepperdine. One thing that's interesting um, about Nazareth, some of the sites that we visited, I, it was interesting to me to realize that some of the sites we visited were surefire, no doubt about it, Jesus was here kind of sites. Our tour guide would call them ground zero sites. And some sites, um, it was like, well, um, we think Jesus was here, or in the fourth century, someone decided Jesus was probably here, and so this is where they erected a, the church, and this is where the church has always celebrated that this story took place, or that this event took place, but probably it wasn't. And those kinds of sites, you, you just kind of had to accept that, well, we're in the vicinity of where that event took place, but we're probably not standing actually in the spot. Nazareth was one of the sites that was like, no way about it, it's the undisputed hometown of Jesus. And the population was only 400. And so when we walked around Nazareth, we had some confidence that yes, I am walking where Jesus walked. I'm looking at hills that <laughs> Jesus looked at and walked. Um, and it was special to be in those kinds of places, and Nazareth was one of those kinds of places. Um, you guys know some of the best-known references to Nazareth in Scripture are some of these. Um, it's the site of the Annunciation. I didn't know what that word meant. <laughs> when we got there, Lee said, I'm going to the Church of the Annunciation. And you can kind of figure it out if you think about it. It sounds like announcement, annunciation. It's the site, or you know, the site where the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary and told her that she would give birth to Jesus and that the Holy Spirit would come upon her and that that's how a virgin would give birth to the Savior. So it's the place where the annunciation took place. That's in Luke 1, 26. Um, Nazareth is also where Joseph and Mary, you'll remember that they fled to Egypt after Jesus was born in Bethlehem because Herod started killing all the baby boys in Bethlehem. So uh, Joseph took his family and fled to Egypt and after a period of time an angel came to Joseph again and said, go back, go back to Nazareth, it's okay now. And that's in Matthew 2. And in fact, this isn't the only, these aren't the only three, but a, a third and final one for this morning is John 1, 46. This may be the most famous one, I don't know. How can anything good come from Nazareth? Um, and that was Nathaniel when Philip told him that Jesus had called him and come, I found the Savior. He's Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel said, how can anything good come from Nazareth? Um, and Nath Nathaniel was apparently a very good guy. That sounds cynical uh, and ugly, kind of. But Jesus, when he saw Nathaniel coming, remember, he's the one that Jesus said, there's a man in whom there is no guile. Um, so a very high compliment from Jesus. But those are some of the scriptures that we have that support that Jesus was from this place. Um, what I want to talk about today, or one of the the groundwork I want to lay so that we can talk about some application a little later in the class time period is that when we went to Nazareth, some of the sites we had been to, 
by the time we got to Nazareth were pretty phenomenal. Um, you know, we had already uh, ridden a boat on the Sea of Galilee. That was pretty phenomenal. We had already stood on Mount Arbel and looked out across. We could see the Sea of Galilee, but we had looked out across the valley and, and were reminded that most of Jesus' ministry took place from that, from, you know, in that valley on the land we were looking at. And it was just amazing to stand there. It just gives me chills right now to even recount that for you. And so when we got to Nazareth, it, was, it wasn't the most phenomenal site we visited. It definitely was not. And so I at first thought, Ugh, I'm a little disappointed in Nazareth. And I think Lee felt a little disappointed when we very first got to Nazareth. But what we did in Nazareth was we learned what civilization was like when Jesus was raised there. And it put me in touch with Jesus' humanity in a way I didn't expect it to do so. So let me give you a few examples of how, well, and Ginger's in here. Ginger, I think this is you. Is this your blouse? Ginger, you have lovely legs. And Steve, Here's Dawn. <laughs> I don't know why their faces got cut off. But anyways, this is an olive press. So we visited a place called Nazareth Village and everything in the village was a replica. Now that was also a downer. But darn it all, there, isn't, there, there aren't a lot of these kinds of things that I'm about to show you that have survived 2,000 years. Lee and I have been to England a number of times and have visited, just taking students to England for study abroad for Lipscomb. And we have seen things that are 800 years old, 600 years old, 900 years old, and we're always so blown away by that. We're talking millennia here. And it is hard. Um, it's very rare to find stuff that old. And when they do find stuff that old, it is 30 feet under and it's excavated and, and they find parts of it and they're trying their best to restore what they can. So this, these that I'm showing you in the next slides are a replica to just flesh out for you what civilization looked like in Nazareth. And they had this set up at a place called Nazareth Village. It's a not-for-profit run by volunteers. But this is an olive press and it's how they would have pressed olives at the time of Jesus in Nazareth. There were lots of olive orchards and olive trees all over Nazareth. That I can tell you for sure. And so they would put the olives in here and grind them with the stone. And then over to the right of this grinding stone, there was um, this sloped filter thing that the olive oil would run down and it would filter out the olive oil from the olive pulp or the olive, you know, fleshy part. Um, and we learned something interesting. We learned that the first press of olives, the, the first press of that oil is the purest. And so that was um, the olive oil that was used for cooking. The second press, they had to apparently add maybe boiling water, hot water to heat the, the pulpy 
remains up and, and press it again, that second press is not as valuable and not as pure. So they use that olive oil to make makeup and cosmetics. Isn't that fascinating? <laughs> 2,000 years ago, they were making facial creams. I just, so fascinating. And then the third press, they do it again. They put the hot water on there and mush it out a little more. So the most impure olive oil, the least valuable olive oil, that's what they used in their lamps. Um, and so on. There, there was even a fourth press, and I can't remember what they used that for, uh, but it, it was purest at the start. And just thinking through, so you're telling me that, Pete, that women in Nazareth wore facial products to look younger and take care of their skin. They put lotions and makeups on, makeup on. That's human. That's part of our culture. That's something I can relate to. These are human women who wanted to look young and pretty at the time of Jesus. Can I relate to that? Yes, I can. I'm a human being. Um, this, again, a um, replica. This is a tomb. And at first, I found this off-putting because I thought, this is what I was afraid of. When I visited Israel, I thought, oh dear, they're going to make it like Disneyland and they're going to have all these models of everything up and, and it'll be too sticky. Um, but I learned about the way they buried their dead using this replica. Um, I've always, have you ever wondered when Joseph of Arimathea donated his tomb to be used for Jesus' body? Have you ever wondered, oh wow, well, I guess that's a lot of, that's a big gift because once you carve um, a grave into a cave and put a body in there and roll a stone over it, well, where are you going to put everybody else's bodies? Are we going to have tombs like that for everybody? Won't, won't, the, won't the land fill up and we won't have any more cool tombs like that to put our dead in? Well, no, that's not how they did it. Um, so here's the inside of that tomb I kind of crawled in. There were three cubbies in the tomb. And the cubbies, if I had laid down in one of these, which I chose not to do. I'm an experiential person. I thought about it, but I did not. I might not have fit. Um, at the time of Jesus, the, I think the average height was 5'4 or 5'2. Something like that. It was 5'2 or 5'4, and I'm even taller than that. So I, I, that was the average height of a man. So these were kind of short cubbies, and again, there were three of them in one tomb. A family would have owned a tomb like this. You put your dead in there, and you treat the body the way that we've read that they treated Jesus' body in the tomb, but then they come back a year later, and they collect the bones, and they put the bones in a stone container called an ossuary, and so you can recycle your tomb. You can re reuse your tomb. So you can have three bodies in there at a time, and it turns over every year. Each one of those cubbies turn over every year. Um, an interesting thing, part of how our civilization, part of my humanity and part of my understanding about my role in society and, and the, uh, the cycle of life to death is visiting my mother's grave. And it's humbling to visit her grave. Her grave is off of Bell Road behind Christ Church. 
on Bell Road. And when I visit her grave, I'm reminded, yep, mom has crossed over and I'm gonna cross over. And that's okay, that's what we do. We're human and this is, this is what I can expect will continue to happen um, in my family. We're all going to go the way, we're all gonna follow mom on this course. And it makes, it makes it okay. This is how we function. This is how we, this is how we do life. This is how they buried their dead. Okay, so you get the idea, hopefully. I, I just, as I walked around Nazareth, I very distinctly remember I was walking um, a winding road. The roads, are, the paths and the roads are all winding there because Nazareth is hilly. And in the time of Jesus, donkeys, um, who apparently are lazy creatures, found that the best way to ascend a hill was by going back and forth. You know, the best way to ascend a steep hill. And I remember realizing that when I was a kid, don't you? It's way easier to do this running up a hill than to go straight. That's right, on a bike. And so the roads are even paved that way in Nazareth. So I was walking on a winding path and buy an olive tree and you know maybe some kind of I looked at a leaf and I thought oh my gosh Jesus was here he was like really here his these kinds of leaves and plants and paths and this is where his olive oil came from and he he was in touch with all of these things um it just, it, it just, the humanity of Jesus came alive to me in a way that it hadn't come to me before. And I realized that I think it's true for us. Maybe this is just my experience. But I think that most of us maybe have an easier time focusing on the divinity of Jesus than on the humanity of Jesus. And the church, all what the early church grappled with, what do we do? Human divine human divine and about the fourth century the early church settled on fully divine and fully human in my experience the fully divine is actually easier to grasp and the fully human I don't know what to do with that and being in Nazareth helped me help me do that help me get there um, so finally, this is also in Nazareth, um, sheep and shepherds. And um, shepherds would travel with their sheep. And then at night, they would come to caves and they would put the sheep in the caves for protection, to protect the sheep. And then they themselves would use their own bodies to lie down at the mouth of the cave to serve as the door to the cave and to protect the sheep. They really actually did this. And you'll remember from last week that Stephen, when he was talking about the differences in storytelling, the Western versus the Eastern and the way we tell stories versus the way the Hebrews told stories, their stories included metaphor, made, made more use of metaphor than our stories do perhaps. Um, but clearly in John 10, when Jesus is explaining that he's the good shepherd and he is the gate to the sheep. Um, and this is how they did their sheep. At the time of Jesus, it's just like, of course, that makes sense. 
Um, so that was, that was the last one I wanted to show you. But where I want to settle today and spend some time is in the synagogue. So this synagogue is not in Nazareth. This is in Capernaum. These are ruins of the synagogue in Capernaum. And this is a real synagogue that was excavated. Um, the way that the synagogues were, we, we saw replicas of synagogues. This is, again, real ruins. Um, Built-in seats all the way around the walls of the synagogue. So this is where people would sit and columns supporting the roof. They're stones, they're very cool. So even though it's hot and dry and dusty outside, you come into the synagogue, there's built-in seats, it's cool. It was a comfortable environment to be in. And you know, and I forgot to ask someone to do this, who is a good reader who doesn't mind projecting their voice and has their Bible with them? Is there any chance that Dwayne Dixon is <laughs> capable of this? <laughs> he is on staff. Do you want my Bible or do you want to use your phone? It's Luke 4, 14 through 30. And this is where I, where I want to challenge us to um, kind of wrestle with what we learned from Jesus here. So it's Luke 4, 14 through 30. So to set this up, Jesus has come back to Nazareth, his hometown. And he goes into the synagogue and he reads to them. And I want you to read. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath, in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, but not one of them was cleansed on the name of the <coughs> All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Thank you. Okay, so Jesus goes back to Nazareth. Now this is after he's been in the wilderness for 40 days, and he is full of the Spirit. The very first couple of verses that Duane read 
um, news about him has, had spread, and he returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. So he is full of the Spirit. News about him has spread, and apparently people are feeling good about him and about what he's saying. Um, it says a little later that they all spoke well of him. I can't see what verse that is. But they're all feeling good about Jesus. And, and Jesus is, um, in, their, in their eyes, he's riding high at this point in time. Now, I um, feel for Jesus' listeners in Nazareth. When he came in and picked up that scroll and read what he read about, and it was from Isaiah. And Dwayne, will you read just that part again, the part from Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord? The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, if I were living in Nazareth at that time, and I had heard that Jesus had come back, Joseph's son, and he came in and read that, I would think that that was curious, but I would also think, well, he's talking about us. He's talking about when we're oppressed, he's here to set us free. When I'm blind, when my, when my family member's blind, he's here, to, he's here to heal my family member. He's talking about us. And so they, and this is where it's unclear. You know, it's hard, it's hard to tell. Why are the scriptures in this order? I don't understand. But right after that, I mean, they're speaking well of him. And then right after, in the same little section, it says, um, isn't this Joseph's son? And it's hard to know. It's impossible to know, I guess. Are they saying, isn't this Joseph's son? Or are they saying, isn't this Joseph's son? Same words, but you can, you can interpret it in two different ways when you can't hear the tone of voice and see the facial expressions. Now, when I read it, because they thought well of him, I hear, isn't this Joseph's son? Like, isn't this great? Look what, look what Stephen Magda's daughter did. Isn't that awesome? This is Stephen Magda's daughter. That's what I hear. But Jesus either didn't hear it that way or... He decided to um, poke at them a bit because he responded to, isn't this Joseph's son, in a, what I would call a contentious way. Um, it sounds like Jesus gets a little contentious when he says, and Dwayne, would you read, um, I'm wearing multifocal contacts. <laughs> And I am supposed to be able to see this. They're very expensive, but I cannot even see. <laughs> it's the, it's the, yeah, where Jesus said to them, surely you will. Yeah, just, just that little, like one or two verses. So Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard you did in Capernaum. Yeah, yeah. So he's, he, it sounds like he's poking at them. Surely now you're going to say, uh, do in your hometown what we've heard you done before. He's responding to what I thought was a, a compliment and positive feedback with um, some, uh, there's some adversarialness I hear, a tone of, um, 
uh, contentiousness here, like let, let's argue about this. Now I don't understand how that transition is made, but I do know that Jesus goes on in the next red section right here that I cannot read to say, <laughs> you know, Elijah fed a widow when the famine went on for three and a half years. Elijah fed a widow, but guess what? It wasn't a Jewish widow. And Elisha, what was it Elisha did? I can't remember. Oh, Elisha healed uh, a leper, but guess what? It wasn't a Jewish leper. And it was at that point that the crowd turned on him and they were gnashing their teeth. And I'm, again, I'm trying to put myself in the picture, in, in the seat of one of the citizens of Nazareth. And I can see how that would be off-putting. I can see how if I had just been celebrating Jesus' return, and then he comes in, and it feels like he's taunting me a little bit, and, and we're not just anybody. We're your hometown. I can see how if you went into a different town and gave this very same message, they might find it off-putting, but maybe they wouldn't have taken it as personally. Um, this is like you going back to your birthplace and saying, you got it wrong. Uh, more people are invited than, than, than you taught me there are. I'm go he has gone back to the place where his humanity was formed to say the invitation list is bigger than you thought it was. Um, and he does it in a provocative way. And so that's where I want to hover for about 10 minutes. I meant to leave more time than this. But what, what do you do with that and what do you make of that? What do you think about that? I'm surprised by the end of the story, which is that they try to kill it. Like, I totally get, like, yes, that would be off-putting and it would be offensive in some ways. But I try to think, okay, if that were happening today, I can't imagine going so far as to try to kill it. Especially <clears throat> somebody that's a child that you watched grow up and is not a child now. But right. Yeah. It surprises me a little bit. I just think, <coughs> we know that these were violent crimes, but were they really that violent? Right. So yeah. Yeah. They very quickly went from speaking well of him to ready to stone him. Yeah, you're right. It was a fast turn. What else does this make you think? Or what else occurs to you? He kind of dictated the response. He dictated the response? Yeah, he came in with an idea that... Can everyone hear Luda? I think he kind of dictated a response where he suggested you're not going to like what I have to say, and they didn't. I, I mean, that's sort of, to me, it's almost like a full setup. Yeah. And I don't know why. And I feel uncomfortable saying that about Jesus. Yeah. But um, I, I, yeah, I agree with you. Sometimes I feel sorry for the crowds because I think oh shoot I would have done exactly what they yeah. did I don't know if I would have tried to push him off a cliff and throw stones on him but I would have I would have <laughs> been offended oh, yeah. Yeah. for sure but in Nazareth you know 
the math doesn't add up on when Mary and Joseph got married. Good point. You know. Yes. Jesus. It's a weirdo. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, that's kind of the whisper. Right. In the town, is the math doesn't add up. That's when good. When he showed up, versus when they said, "I got married," and I mean, I'm old enough to know what we said at my time period when the math didn't add up. So I'm <laughs> sure that they said that 2,000 years ago. And he was just always just a little not quite done right. That's so good. For him to show up and I think in a way it's like, you know, if, if the people in the synagogue were whispering, uh, he might have just felt like I'm tired of this. That's an excellent point. Ginger. Another thought I just had is, you know, maybe, once again, I can't know what Jesus was thinking, but, you know, maybe he took that attitude of, you know, yeah, I'm Joseph's son, but I'm God's son. And, you know, I'm sure he probably at times got tired of just healing people that his thing was, I want to tell you about God, and all you want me to do is take care of your physical needs, and I'm more about your spiritual needs, or equally about. And right. So, you know, maybe that was part of this thing. Is, yeah, I'm Joseph's son, but I'm God's son. And let me tell you about him. Yeah. You know, not just what I can perform and do for you. Yeah. So. Steve and then Walter. you got to put yourself in the place of the villagers in Nazareth. They have been deeply, deeply resentful of all these foreign people that have put the boot on their throat for all these centuries. And their belief is, when the Messiah comes, not only will he put things right, it's payback time. It's time for us to take advantage of our new position in this world and all the foreigners and all the people that have been mistreating us and become Crossed this country over and over again and destroyed us and taken us into captivity. We're going to put things right. And Jesus comes up here and he says, You got this wrong. Not only, I'm not going to take revenge on these people. I'm, these people are going to be co equal with us in the kingdom. And that, I think that's like, you know, what right do you have to say? how we're going to treat these people. We're going to, it's a new way. Yeah, yeah. And to dovetail right off that, I just think it's ironic that, you know, one of the, the examples he gives is a Syrian. Is the who? Is a Syrian. Yes. That uh, Elijah helps. And we find ourselves in the same position of uh, people getting tremendously upset of that is, those, those are others that we have no responsibility. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Steve. Well, one thing when I was there that was resonating, and sort of take it into our culture and today, these people that lived in Nazareth weren't blessed with very good soil. They weren't, it wasn't the place of commerce. They were scrapping out hard-working sites. They were lived a hard living. I don't want to call it poor in the sense of, but they were just hard working, tough life, probably pretty conservative, 
put yourself in that position. So I actually can't believe when, if you lived in the 1940s, northern Mississippi, someone coming with radical ideas, they probably would take you outside that, Right. You know, the city had maybe done. Yeah. Did you some harm. That's a good point. And, you know, they're just hard working, scrapping, felt, you know, things are the way that things are. Right. It's the way it's always been. Right. So. Yeah, that's good. What else? And well, kind of just all along with all that, it just seems like they um, they maybe made up their minds a little bit sooner in a quicker way, shorter time span. But is he the Messiah or is he not? And is he the Messiah we were expecting? And at first it says the scripture's been fulfilled in your hearing, and they're going, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he said, but it's not the way you think it is. And they were going, no, no, no. Then you're not the one. Maybe that's where they got so mad. Yeah. I think you're right. I think you're right. I think that one thing that strikes me about this story that makes it make a little more sense is that Jesus knew. I mean, his ministry was how many years? Three-ish. He didn't have a ton of time to um, to bring people along. He had to get it out there. Um, and move on and tell some more people. His ministry wasn't that long, um, start to finish. And so it's possible that he needed to just say it. And if it's offensive, it's offensive. But it's the truth, and I don't have much time to tell you. So here it is. And it may take you a long time to process this, a lot longer than we've got today. But I've got to get the truth out there. What had he done at this point to have them say all spoke well of him? I mean, they had his, he was confirmed by, his, by God at his baptism. Mm-hmm. Is that what they're remembering? You know, and then he goes off in the wilderness, but I don't know, I don't know what he actually done, and then I'm trying to figure out, maybe somebody in the room can tell us, like, when was the, the first miracle was the wedding? Had he done that at this point? I, I don't know. Like his words, obviously, something about his words and something about how he read caused them to think you know, that all spoke well of him and were made. Mm-hmm. Can anyone flesh out that timeline? Do we know what miracles he had done by that point? The Bible's not chronological, okay? Sure. But you can implant here that some some amazing stuff has already gone on and, and uh so the word i mean this is real close uh, and they they have heard this stuff and you hear mm-hmm. about this hometown guy man he's blowing them away mm-hmm. and so it's it seems like his ministry is already kind of centered in capernaum mm-hmm. and he's working out of there so this is probably i don't know six months to a year at least into his ministry mm-hmm. before he goes back to Nazareth. Very good. You're talking about the humanness of Jesus while you're there. You're kind of connected to that. I kind of thought when you were making the introduction into this, he just came out of the wilderness for 40 days. I mean, wouldn't you be salty? And yes. The spirit, <laughs> the spirit of the Lord is on me, you know, and he's like levitating and they're like, ooh, this is our 
this is our boy Jesus. He's like, no, you're not getting it. So he's a little salty. And, yeah. You know. Yeah. He, he kind of goes and just, like you said, goes to the lawn. And yeah. At work, if I skip breakfast and then oh, eat yeah. my lunch late, the people I work with <laughs> become aware quickly <laughs> right. that I am not going to um, smooth out my words for them. That's right. I'm going to be blunter. I'm going to have a little less patience. I'm going to be a little more curt and to the point. Yeah. I don't. My, I am. So I think that is very spirit, good. But he was also full of it too. He's like, you know what? I've had <laughs> cut to the chase. Right. Yeah. The chase. Well, what I want you all to chew on this week, if you think about this class this week at all, I want you to chew on this. Try to um, imagine yourself in a similar situation. Whether you're the one who's gone back, maybe to your family of origin. You know, later in Jesus' ministry, he does this with family too. He says, you have an allegiance to family that's not of the kingdom. You need to let go of some of your allegiances, not just to your hometown and to, uh, uh, to the way we Jews have always thought it should be done, but even to your family. You know, he gets up in your face about your allegiances. And I want you to ju just try to recall some times when maybe a family member of yours came back home or maybe you were that family member who went back home or went back to your hometown um, and said something that was radical. And um, what, what about doing it that way is helpful and, and wise? And when maybe is that uh, not always the best route for us to take? It can be done well or it can be done poorly. Um, that is the, the technique Jesus used here. This is, this is a radical, um, these are, this is a radical way to communicate a message very quickly. Um, th just think about your own experience with that technique and when has it been helpful to you and when has it not? When have you learned from it and when has it uh, not served its purpose? Thank you, everyone, for being here today. We'll see you next week. And I think Becky will teach. Becky Frazier.